I'm going to shorten the reading just a little bit. There's a section at the very end, I think 45 through 49. My sense is properly it belongs to um, chapter 21. Yeah. Ezekiel 20, verse 1. Hear God's holy word. Now in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord, and they sat before me. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Do you come to inquire of me? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Make them know the abominations of their fathers. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them, Cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes. Do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me, and they were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Therefore, thus, then I resolved to pour out my wrath upon them, to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and formed them of my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. Also I gave them my Sabbaths to be assigned between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They rejected my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, before whose sight I had brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Because they rejected my ordinances, and as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually went after their idols. Yet my eyes spared them, rather than destroying them. And I did not cause their annihilation in the wilderness. I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, or keep their ordinances, or defile yourself with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, keep my ordinances, and observe them. Sanctify my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. They profaned my Sabbaths, so I resolved to pour out my wrath upon them, to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands, because they had not observed my ordinances, but they had rejected my statutes, they had profaned my Sabbaths, 
and with their and their eyes were upon their idols of their fathers. I also gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their gifts, and that they caused all of their firstborn to pass through the fire, so that I might make them desolate in order that they might know that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me by acting treacherously against me. When I brought them into the land which I swore to give them, then they saw every high hill, every leafy tree. They offered there their sacrifices. There they presented the provocation of their offerings. There they made their soothing aroma. and There they poured out their drink offerings. Then I said to them, What is the high place to which you go? So it is called Bama to this day. Therefore says the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourself after the manner of your fathers and play the harlot after their detestable things? When you offer your gifts, when you cause your sons to pass through the fire, you're defiling yourself with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of you by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What comes into your mind will not come about when you say, We will be like the nations, like the tribes of the lands, serving wood and stone. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with my wrath poured out. I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod. I will bring you into the bond of a covenant. I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Go serve everyone his idols, but later you will surely listen to me. In my holy name you will profane no longer with your gifts and with your idols. For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will seek your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your holy things. As a soothing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered, and I will prove myself holy among you in the sight of all the nations, and you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give to your forefathers. There you will remember your ways and all your deeds in which you have defiled yourself, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds. O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Let's pray. Lord God, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? All of us, Lord God, have fallen short of your glory. All of us have sinned. None of us could stand in our own righteousness, Almighty God. We are like Israel. Rebels that give birth to rebels that are born from rebels in utter rebellion. Almighty God, we thank you that you are a just God and a righteous God and a holy God. But how thankful we are, Lord, that you are a holy 
merciful, loving, saving God. We thank you that you save rebels and make them your children and your Christ. We pray that we might see these things even tonight. In Christ's name, amen. I've entitled the sermon, Rebellion, Restoration, and Removal. I had originally developed it in some kind of, I don't know, it was neater than I thought. Um, I'll, probably, I'll probably combine all three of those things as, together as we walk through uh, the passage. Let's just kind of look at it as, as, as my ordinary custom, to look at it in, in a big picture and then to send it down to some of the particulars Chapter 19, if you remember chapter 19, we've changed genres. So uh, genre is the style of writing. And the genre of writing in chapter 19 is it's poetry. There is poetry. And poetry is metaphorical language, symbolical language. And so last week, what God had inspired Ezekiel to say and thus to write was a poem, a divine poem. And he's, he's, he's... He's saying very similar things that he says tonight, but he says them previously in poetic language. And you remember the two, I guess the two um, figures, symbols, that God used against or for his people Israel hyphen Judah, Judah in particular, is he called, he called the kings your young lions, your ravenous lions. You're not dove-like, you're not lamb-like, um, you're devil-like, and you're devouring everything around you and uh, for that reason God will send four pagan kings they'll catch you in their nets they'll hook you in the face with their hooks and they'll take you off into captivity and we said one of the kings of Judah was taken to Necho, Pharaoh king of Pharaoh and then the other one off to Nebuchadnezzar in in Babylon And, and I actually think he's speaking about four kings but two in particular so under the figure of lions not a good figure and then we saw the other symbolical language that God used against his people in chapter 19. He says Israel was like a vine, which is true. If you look at Isaiah chapter 5, it's very common. The agricultural people, God speaks to them in agricultural language. they readily understandable. God regularly calls Israel my vine. Jesus uses that, that, that language. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Very common language. But in that particular section... Not only did he say the kings are like ravenous lions, he says the people of God are just like the kings. Um, they're, they're unfruitful vines. There's no love, there's no joy, there's no peace, patience, all of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, they're not bearing. This is a Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. And it, we profess faith, we profess the true gospel, and then we stand back and say, well, is the life commensurate with the gospel? They were able to say right things, we're people of God. We're people of Jehovah. We're longing for the Messiah. So far, so good. But then they were living like Egyptians. They were living like Babylonians. And God said, you're a fruitless vine. And you remember what he said in that symbolical language. He said, I'm going to throw you to the ground. I'm going to burn you in fire. And the book of Hebrews says about says this, a New Testament book, that if we do not produce fruits, it testifies that we're not truly, savingly, uh, mystically, spiritually joined to Jesus Christ. There's no life of Christ in us. This is a Galatians 2.20. Paul says Christ is in me. The Christ that is in us will come out of us. Holy words, holy looks, holy countenance, holy deeds. 
And if there's no holy fruits, it shows there's no holy Christ inside of us. And the only thing that awaits a person that's a mere professor without being a possessor of Christ is to be broken off and cast in the fire. So what God said in poetry form in Genesis 19, he says very, very similar things in this particular chapter. This chapter is written as historical narrative. So he switched genres. He's gone for the genre of poetry and now historical narrative. And it's just straight history. It's, It's written like straight history because it's history. And so God retains the right to speak to his people how he desires to speak to his people. Um, I think the most symbolical book in the Bible, you have Daniel, Ezekiel, that's up there. Book of Revelation, I I would argue the New Testament book, uses the most symbolism. Old Testament symbolism teaches, teaches truth. Here, what we have is historical narrative, and it's more straightforward. There's less... I don't think there's a whole lot of guesswork, even with the poems, because it's so simple. But certainly this is straightforward. And chapter 20 is not only historical narrative, but it's written as a divine dialogue. This is God speaking with his people. Just as an aside, if I could step back. One of the things about the Reformed faith I love, I, I, I always hate to hyphen things. I, I love Christians. People that love Jesus, I love them. Whether they're Pentecostal or it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. But I feel more comfortable in the Reformed Church because I, I I find it to be more biblical. And one of the things that I, I love about the Reformed faith is what we refer to as the dialogical principle of worship. Chapter 20 is a reflection of what we refer to as the dialogical principle of worship. It's a fancy way of saying when we come to worship with God's people in his word, it's God dialoguing. He speaks to his people and his people speak back to him. That's the dialogical principle of worship. So when we come here, this isn't loving worship to love the style of worship or those kind of things. We're not worshiping ourselves. We're not here for ourselves per se. We're here to commune or have friendship, to have a dialogue with God, to hear from heaven and to speak back to God in heaven. God speaks to us in his word. We speak back to him in our prayers and our praises, those kind of things, even in our thoughts. So it's that dialogical principle of worship. That's why, you remember God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, take your shoes off. Remember that? Take your shoes off. Why should you take your shoes off when you're in the presence of God? Because you're in the holy presence of God. I think even Joshua, the captain of the Lord of hosts, comes and he has to take his shoes off. And when we are in the presence of God, particularly in corporate worship, we should take our shoes off symbolically or figuratively speaking as it were because we're in holy ground christ walks among the lampstands of his of his church so christ is here and so god speaks to us we speak to him chapter 20 is a dialogue god speaks to his people and we see something else it's the principle of representative government which i another reason why i'm a reformed presbyterian i do believe that god interacts with his people through a representative and or a mediator. No one comes directly to God anymore. After the fall of Adam, he only interacts with people via a representative or a mediator. You're either represented in Adam or you're represented by Jesus Christ. You're not strolling into the presence of holy God without the representative representation of either one of those two federal heads. And so what we see here is God is speaking to his people via that representative, via the man Ezekiel, his prophet. 
And then the people, likewise, will speak back to and hear from God via their representatives, in this case, the elders. So we have the dialogical principle of worship. We have the notion of God interacting with us via a mediator or a representative. In this case, God's representative, his herald, his spokesman, to speak to his uh, people. We're going to see a couple of things. I'm going to... It's a fairly simple... um, passage in, in, in most of it God is charging his people with rebellion and he charges them variously or in three epochs of their history he charges them with rebellion in Egypt with rebellion in the wilderness and with rebellion in the promised land and throughout the throughout all of those sections and particularly at the, the section that we ended with God promises to restore them he says throughout the whole thing I should destroy you and I've, I've, I've intended to destroy you but I won't for my name. So you have the justice of God, his threats of God, and then throughout the whole, this is why I can't, I, can't, I was going to put it to the very end, but it's throughout the whole, it's, it's God's promise of justice. I will have justice on you, and then, but I won't destroy you for my name. I'm going to preserve you. That's grace. That's mercy. That's long-suffering. And he does that for every generation of re- rebels For the rebels in Egypt, he says, I should destroy you, but I won't. For the rebels in the wilderness, he said, I should have destroyed your fathers, but I brought you into the wilderness. And I should destroy you in the wilderness, but I won't. I'm not going to bring you into the the promised land. I'll let you die in the wilderness, but I won't. Every generation. So when we are subdued to God in Christ, when we are born again, the gift of faith enables us to to tremble at the threats of God, the warnings of God, and to rejoice at the promises and the kindness of God. We have the ability to do both. Without saving faith, you come to a passage like this, you you give this chapter to an unbeliever. All they see is God's anger and God's justice. That's all they're going to see. They're going to go, wow, you serve an angry God. They're not going to see as soon as God says, I should annihilate you right away. He says, yet for my name, I won't. Then I have my interest. They're not going to see that. Romans 8, 7, without faith, it's impossible to understand the word of God. Without faith, people hate the God of the word. But with faith, when we come here, yes, there's warning after warning after warning. The people are rebels after rebels after rebels. God's righteous. He would be just to kill the whole lot of them. But what does he do? But I'm not. But I'm going to speak to your children. But I'm going to promise your children. And then they're going to rebel. And then I'm going to promise... That is, the, that is the long-suffering grace and the mercy of Almighty God throughout the whole passage. When I look at this passage, again, we see the justice of God and the mercy of God. I would argue this, beloved. You may differ with me and you might be right, but I, this is what I think. The justice of God is more, is more understandable to us. I understand that better. God is holy. I am not. And in His justice... He should punish me. I understand that. We understand that. If your mums or dads, or or you just have the sense of justice, somebody does wrong, you should punish them for doing wrong. We are wrongdoers. We should be punished. It's understandable. Whether or not we want to escape from under the punishment of our superior God or not. But it's understandable. I think the thing that's less understandable and more overwhelming is the love of God. Justice I get. I deserve to be damned. I I get that. But you're going to forgive me. And I deserve to be damned. 
And I'm going to rebel against you constantly. And you're going to regularly forgive me and extend mercy to me. That one's harder to get. Legalism is easy to understand. Being a Pharisee is easy. We got rules in this here house. You either, you either obey them or you go straight to hell. Th- th- that's easy. Natural man thinks like that. That's not, that's not God. We thank God God is God and man is not God. We'd all be damned in hell a hundred times over. Look at this chapter. You sin against me, sin against me, sin against me. I should annihilate you, but I'm not going to. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to bring you into the land. I'm going to purge you from all of these evil people, and you'll know that I'm God. The mercy and the love and the grace of God, it'll bring you to tears. What does the Bible say in the book of Romans, chapter 2? It is the kindness of what that leads you to what? (laughs) It's the kindness of God. We sometimes think with our kiddos, well, you've got to hold the line. You've got to show them if they do break rule number 602. You've got to bring the hammer down right away if you want them to obey. You don't want them to be a weenie because then they'll just walk all over you. Oh, beloved, it's, it's not the hammer that woos people to Jesus Christ. It's the love of God that melts us. I'm not, God's not discounting justice. He doesn't wink at it. That's what the cross is all about. And thousands and thousands of these people died in Egypt. They died in the wilderness. They died in the promised land for their sins, many of them. But he he preserved countless that deserve to be killed and damned a thousand times over. It's the love of God, the mercy of God. I think that's what the world needs. Again, I, I hearken back to the people that are so upset over the overthrow of the of Roe Wade. They're they're maniacally mad. Our response to their anger, if we respond in anger, that's not God-like. That's not, like, that's not Christ-like. What will overwhelm their maniacal anger and wrath? What should we overcome evil with what? What does the Bible say? It's this chapter. Justice, 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 justice. But I'm not. I'm going to save you. I will preserve you. God overwhelms our evil with his good all throughout the chapter. So that's really the chapter kind of in a macro sense. Um, You do have, as I mentioned, with with the, the title, Rebellion, Restoration, Removal, God accuses his people um, in, in verse 8, verse 12, a number of times he uses the word rebellion, you're rebels. He accuses his people, Judah, of being rebellious. He's not speaking to the Egyptians or the Babylonians. They're, re, they're re, re, rebels as well, but he's speaking to his people. They're rebellious. And then the second is God promises, as we've said, to restore. And then ultimately God promises in the restoration to, to remove. And when I say remove, he, he, he's going to take the rebels out from among his restored people. Someday, there's going to be no mixed multitude in the church, no goats in the church, no tares in the church to corrupt the church. And someday, was it George Whitfield? It was, it was George, it was, I think it was George Whitfield. said, one of the greatest things about heaven, I'm going to paraphrase, is that sin won't be there, and especially his sin won't be there. So not only in this removal as part of the restoration, we don't often think like that. On the judgment day, which this is looking forward to the judgment day, when there's the separation of the sheep and goats, that's a good thing. 
That's a good thing. No more children of darkness to plague and corrupt the children of light. And not only that, when God talks about this principle of removing the enemies, removing the rebels, we're no longer going to have that principle. You know, in, in James chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 2, Romans chapter 7, our flesh wages against the spirit. Our corrupt members want things which are contrary to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's a fight. It's a miserable fight. Don't you often feel like Romans chapter 7, why do I say, think, and do things which I don't want to think, say, and do? And why do I not do the things that I know I should do? And I why? It's that war. That's going to be removed. So no more sheep, no more tares at the removal. This is looking forward to the, the final day of judgment and the eternal estate. But we're not going to have no more indwelling rebel. When I look at the world and think, oh, look, oh, isn't it horrible how they're screaming and lusting to kill babies? How horrible. It is horrible. I carry a little traitor inside of me, my corrupt flesh, that gives me more anxiety than, than unregenerate man. I think it, it, I have more combustible material in me that one day I hope to have removed from me as part of the restoration. Now, Let's look at, in this divine dialogue, uh, how the dialogue is instigated. It's instigated in an inquiry. The elders of Israel come to Ezekiel and they say, we would like to inquire of God. They have a question of God. So in an inquiry, you have a number of things going on. You have, you have someone that lacks knowledge or wisdom and they go to one that has the knowledge or the wisdom, or at least perceived to have the knowledge. And so in this case, the elders are coming and they're saying to God, to God's representative, can you go to God for us? We have a question, something perplexing. We don't have the answer. We're coming to you. We're coming to God via God's man. We know you, oh God, have the answer and we would like to know. So in this inquiry, you have at least externally, and I hate to use these terms, but I'm going to have to use the terms. You have the subordinate or the inferior coming to the superior. We don't use that language. I'm not going to say the woman's name, but there's a a woman in our circle of the church who was OP and she's not OP. She's interacting. She wrote an article against, uh, oh, I forget the guy's name, Westminster Divine. And the man used superior and inferior. And she said, well, what kind of misogyny is this? Why Why would you use superior, inferior? Who believes this archaic, misogynistic nonsense? And as I was reading the article, I'm like, I know the answer to that. He says in the 1600s, <laughs> this is the language they use. This is the language of our confession. He was one of the divines. We use it in the fifth commandment. What are the duties of superiors, inferiors, and equals? And it's, it's not ontological. It's, it's economical. It's, it's, um, it's fu- function, role. My mother's dead now, but when my mother was alive, um, in one realm, she was my superior. And if she came into the church and she was a member, I would be in another realm her superior. You remember Solomon's mother came in, Bathsheba came to see Solomon. And what did Solomon the king do when his mom walked in the room? He got off the throne and what did he do? He got down on his face before his mom. Because in that instance, the mom is the superior and the boy, even though he's the king, takes the subordinate position. But then later the mom says, hey, by the way, can your brother have your such and so can have you the widow he says what are you trying to do steal the kingdom and then he takes the superior position against his mom's subordinate position 
So when I use this term, maybe it's because I read too much in the 1600s, when we say to one who knows, I don't know, you know, tell me. This is at least in one sense the proper posture that we should have as creatures before our creator, as redeemed before our redeemer. So that it begins with an, with an inquiry. As I mentioned, um, the elders of Israel come to, uh, to inquire of God through, through um, Ezekiel. You remember how we got the, the institution of the office of elder. It was, it was uh, Moses who was running himself ragged. And it was Jethro, his father-in-law, who also has another name. I forget Jethro's other name. Um, but Jethro, his father-in-law, said, Listen, Moses, what you're trying to do is not good. He was hearing cases, civil cases, with the people, and he was running himself ragged. He said, basically, institute the office of elder. I think it was 70 elders that they instituted, so you could spread the work. And there is that representative government, which, again, is why I'm Presbyterian. Presbyterianism hinges on two biblical concepts. The concept of, of um, plurality of elders, plurality of rulership, um, spread about representative elders, and then connectionalism, that there's a connectionalism among the church. Those are the two principles of Presbyterianism. And we see that here in seed form with the institution of the office of elder. And so at least here we have some of the men, probably not all 70 of the men, uh, come to um, inquire of uh, God and um, God has ordained these men, elders, to care for the flock of God. We've said this many times before, and this is one of the reasons that God is more incensed with them than the people. With position and authority comes responsibility and culpability. I've said this many times before. If a 22-year-old married guy cheats on his wife, it's a, it's a gross sin. If a 58-year-old married minister with children and grandchildren cheats on his wife, it's an even more grotesque sin. Because with a position, with the gifts, with graces, those kind of things, comes added responsibility. These men have the added responsibility of caring for the flock of God, and they, they pervert it for, for their own use. When we get to Ezekiel chapter 34, if we get there, God says, the whole lot of you, all of you shepherds, None of you are in this to serve me. None of you are in it to take care of the people of God. You're in it to get fat and to eat off the people. And I'm going to destroy the whole lot of you. And so this is a, a portion of those people. In the book of, um, the book of uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, false apostles, false prophets, they come. And, and this is what the people are doing here. The devil, does, it, we're seeing hypocrisy which is play acting Christians who sin and fail is not being a hypocrite the charge that we're open to as Christians is y'all are hypocrites and I, I saw you, you you didn't live perfect you didn't walk on water you didn't feed the people with the fish and the loaves you're a hypocrite but that, that's silly Christians sin against God in man in thought word and deed every day that doesn't make every Christian a hypocrite it just means you're not glorified Hypocrite is literally a play actor. These men are hypocrites. They put a mask on. Hypocrite's play actor. You're not a believer. You know you're not a believer. You have your mask on. And your mask says, hi, look at me. I'm an elder. Look at me. I'm a minister. I'm coming before holy Ezekiel. I love holy Ezekiel because I love holy God. Holy God, we're holy elders. We have a holy question for you. 
And God says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. I'm not going to be inquired of you. You're play acting. God says, I know your heart. You're false workers. You're deceitful workers. Even the devil disguises himself as an angel of what? This is why when people that destroy the church, people that want to take you away from the gospel, they don't wear the robes of like the Harry Krishna. They're not coming beating a Harry Krishna drum or saying, hi, I work for the devil. That's not what they do. They have suits on, if it's a suit. They have the perfect version of the Bible. They speak with a British accent because it's you. everyone's suckered in by a British accent. Scottish. If it's Scottish, you're toast. And they look, they look like servants of righteousness, just like servants of righteousness. That's these guys. We just want to know, God, we want to know your holy will. And God says, actually, you don't. You don't want to know my holy will because I keep telling you my holy will and you keep running off and committing idolatry. That's a hypocrite. And these elders, these ministers are hypocrites. They're play actors. And God says, I won't be inquired of you by you will get justice. This is a fearful thing. I'm easily fooled because I want everyone to be a Christian. If you come to me and say, I love Jesus, I hate my sin, I'm going to believe you. Even if you're in the back going, ha, 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 I tricked Pastor John. I'm going to live in my sin. I want to believe you. God's not fooled. God, I have been fooled so many times. I say to someone, now you're really, really stopping. Oh, yeah, Pastor. Yeah, I'm stopping that sin. <laughs> really? Okay, praise God, you're reformed. And then they leave. Ha, ha, ha. I'm in my sin. God is looking at these people saying, I know exactly who you are. You're not fooling me. They come... To, to Ezekiel under the guise of an inquiry. And the inquir- inquiry is obvious. And the inquiry is twofold. We're the children of God and we're in captivity. And we're in captivity to pagans. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's the question. And so we look at the church of Jesus Christ and think, why is the church taking it on the, the, the chin? Look at evening service. I love the fact that everybody's here. It's why I'm preaching to the choir. I sit in another session in addition to this session and a prospective minister said, well, if I come to be the minister, can I kill the evening service? And all the two ministers, myself and the other minister, the other elder, we recoiled. And and the fellow said, Johnny, what's your... I was on the phone. I said, well, you know what? I will have evening service with my wife and and a house cat. And if my wife can't make it, I'll preach to the house cat. The evening service is like gone the way of of the dodo and you think this was like 20 years ago everybody Methodists Episcopalians we all had evening service right where did it go you said what happened to the church this happened to the church you have hypocritical elders who are leading hypocritical people saying we just want to know God's will and God says no you actually don't want to know my will and so God calls them repeatedly throughout the God calls them on their hypocrisy And imagine that. Imagine you're saying, you're coming before an omniscient, omnipresent God. God's everywhere. He knows everything. And you think you're going to pull the wool over God's eyes. We just want to know. And the funny thing is, when they come to inquire of God, they want to know, why are we in captivity? God has told them through Isaiah and specifically through Jeremiah, you're going to captivity because you're living like a pagan and you're going to be there for 70 years. And the people come and say, why are we here again? We just we, we want to know what a holy God has to say. And when God calls them on their hypocrisy, 
He says, you keep running to your idols. And, and this manifests the rebellion of God's people, which is stunning that God doesn't damn the whole lot of them. They go to God and say, God, we want to hear your answer. And God gives the answer. And you know what they do? Well, that answer wasn't very palatable. Let's go up on that green, uh, under that green tree, under that high mountain. Let's get out our little stick and stone. We'll ask the queen of heaven what her answer is on our question. If you have more than two kids, potentially, maybe another person's family, probably not your family. I think in the family of my youth, I might have done this. You go to your father, you go to your mother. My mother's answer was always no. My father's answer usually was always yes. So I would always try to get around my mother and go to, and then if my mother said no, I only did it once or twice because then bad things would happen if they found out you were trying to work one against the other. You'd go, can I do whatever? And if I did whatever and he found out that my mother said no, I was up the creek. This is exactly what they're doing. Oh God, we want to hear from you. Oh, so sin is a bad thing. I can't have my sin. You're going to judge sin. You're going to send us off into captivity. And because we live like pagans, you're going to punish us with the pagans? Right. Well, thanks God. I'll go talk to my false God with my idol over here. And then they're saying, so why are we being punished again? Well, because you're living like sinners and I want you to stop. Well, that's an interesting thought, God. I'm going to go talk to my false God. We, we, we look at this and we think, and this is the unbeliever. The unbeliever it says, oh, the God you serve is such a mean, quick, quick to anger God. Quick to anger God? Look at the three places. You're living like heathens in Egypt. You're crying to me to save you out of Egypt and you're living like a pagan in Egypt. And I save you. Then I bring you into the wilderness. And what are you doing in the wilderness? I just saved you from being a slave. For how many years were they slaves? 430 years? And they're living like heathens. They get freely emancipated from slavery. What's one of the first things they do? Well, we don't know what happened to Moses. By the way, Aaron, could you make us a golden calf? Could we bow down and then we rise up to play? I think there's immorality in their worship. In Egypt, in the wilderness, and you, you think, if God was as quick to anger as the unbeliever says, this, there would be Genesis 3, 1 through 8 in no other books of the Bible. And then God, the whole time, says, I should annihilate you, but I won't. I'll, re, I'll, I'll preserve you and I'll restore you. He gets them into the promised land. This is why I'm not post-millennial. I'm not picking on post-millennial people. They're probably smarter than me and all that stuff. Eschatology, my interest is in personal eschatology, getting people to die and meet God. I, I'm not jazzed up about the other eschatology, but I can't buy the other eschatology that somehow we're going to make this post-millennial heaven and earth. They entered the physical promised land, and what did they live like? Pagans. They lived like pagans. As they're driving out the pagans, they immediately started subjugating their poorer brothers and sisters. They started enslaving their brothers and sisters. And what's Ezra doing? Ezra, or Nehemiah, one, is ripping their beards out, cursing at them, and punching them, saying, are you out of your mind? We were just in slavery for 430 years. We cried for God to have mercy. He led us through the wilderness for 40 years. We lived like heathen in the wilderness. He brings us into the promised land, and you're living like a heathen. Are you out of your minds? And through all of this, God does what? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to treat you as your evil deeds deserve. 
What do our evil deeds deserve? Death, damnation. And what does God say? For my own name. And then at the very end of what we looked at, which to me is, is the hopeful thing. To me, the very thing. I will make you pass under the rod. This is, this is for the Israel of God. This is for the true elect. After all of the rebellion, just think of your own, think of your own life even, even as a believer. As a believer, what's the quantity and the quality of your love and obedience to God? Just, what is it? How much do we love God and obey God? How much? And how much do we love sin that God hates? Idolatry. Read Ephesians chapter 5. We make an idol out of everything. Here the children of Israel, yeah, we love God. Interesting. Idols, idols, idols. It's so easy. And we think, well, yeah, we're going to go to heaven because grace and mercy. We say grace and mercy. It flows off our thing like you want pepperoni on your pizza. I will purge from you the rebels. I will bring you out of the land. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. On my holy mountain, my mountain of Israel, there the whole house of Israel. This is the Israel of God. This is the elect. They will serve me in the land. There I will accept them. There I will seek your contributions, your choices, gifts, with all your holy things. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. That's what we call sovereign grace. If our salvation, both the, inst- the initiation of it and the preservation of it and the culmination of it, if it was de- dependent on us, we would be lost a million times over. God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. And then it says, you're going to remember your evil deeds and that I didn't treat you according to your evil deeds. And that's what I really wanted to get this morning and I probably didn't get. We're such sinners. And our sin is so gross. But our God is so loving and so merciful. And he delights to save sinners. And he does. And we praise him for it. Uh, May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.